Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Welcome into Off the Pike Eastern Conference Finals Preview Edition as we get you ready for the Celtics and the Miami Heat. Joining us now, he covers the NBA for ESPN. You hear him on the Hoop Collective as well. You see him on this just in. Sports Center as well. It is Tim Bontemps. Tim, thanks so much for taking some time, man. How are you? Doing well, buddy. How are you? We're doing well. I mean, you must be happy now that it's just one Eastern Conference final series, man. How many series were you going back and forth between during this thing? I uh, I mean, I mostly was just with Sixers Celtics, especially in the second round. But um, being in New York, I was able to get to a bunch of Nick games over the first couple of rounds, which was fun. Um, would have been wouldn't have been opposed to having uh, a Nick Celtics series and having a bunch of home games instead of going down to Miami. But another Celtics Heat series is pretty fun, too. So looking forward to seeing uh Jimmy Butler against Jason Tatum and Bam Adebayo against Jalen Brown and should be a really fun, exciting, interesting series like it always is when these two teams play. Yeah, before we get into some of the details with this series, can you remember a team like this in recent history where it seems like on one day they can look like they're absolutely unbeatable like they did in Game 7 and then they can have so many of these games where they just completely lay eggs? I mean, it goes all the way back to last year, too. I think about the Bobby Portis rebound game. I think about some of the games against Miami, the turnovers. We think about Game five against Atlanta, when you have a golden opportunity to make sure that you get the Sixers earlier, so Embiid maybe misses two games in that series. So they've had, in game one, they lost to the Sixers without Embiid. It's just, it's remarkable to me that they can look so good on one night, and then the next night, it's at this point, you're not surprised when they lay these eggs. Yeah, I was going to say, it reminds me of the 2022 Celtics and the 2021 Celtics, you know, right? (laughs) Like, this is just sort of the DNA of this team. And, you know, we can go back to, um, game four when Joe Mazzulla didn't call the timeout, right, against the Sixers. And I thought the timeout stuff was silly, 
and I think it's been silly most of the year. Generally, I like the fact when coaches are not calling timeouts and they let the players play because usually you're going to get better outcomes in those situations. At the end of the day, you got Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Al Horford, like veteran experienced players who played dozens of playoff games. How about just go out there and know the situation and make the right play and no, you know, no time and score. Like you shouldn't need the coach to call a timeout to tell you the time and score when you're down one with 18 seconds to go, right? You should just know, Hey, 18 seconds left down one. We got to attack, give ourselves multiple opportunities. Instead, they waited around Tatum kind of lazily decided to drive in. Then he decides to kick it out instead of shooting. And yep, not even getting a shot off. They lose, right? Like that, that sort of in a nutshell encapsulated the way Boston plays on some nights. And then, like you said, then they come out in game seven and Tatum's hitting threes and they're all hitting threes and they win by a million points. So they are a maddening team. They are the deepest and most talented team left in the playoffs. They really should win another eight games and win the title, but can you trust them to actually do that? No, you can't because as we've seen time and again over the past few years, this team is at its best when it's getting in its own way. And that's why these series have all extended longer than they needed to. And that's why it took them seven games to beat Philly. That's why it took them six games to beat Atlanta. And they better not mess around against Miami, a team they are much better than and should beat, but has a guy in Jimmy Butler who is good enough where like last year, he has the chance to potentially steal it from him. So I think it'll be a compelling series, but a lot of that comes down to the fact that the Celtics just are the most maddening team I can remember. Yeah, and that's why they have to have so many of these epic wins like Game 6 against Milwaukee last year or like we saw in Game 6 against Philadelphia. They have to have these unbelievable wins because they have such these stinkers in previous games. All right. Well, and by the way, by the way, they're 10 and 9 over the last two years at home in the playoffs. (laughs) It's great at the Garden of all places at the Garden. They've had 19 home games. They've had 19 home games and they're 10 and 9. So if you've played 19 home games over two playoffs, that means you're playing a lot of playoff games, right? Generally, right. that means you're a really good team, which the Celtics are. You should be winning your home games. You shouldn't be losing, you know, two or three home games every series. I mean, it's just, it's wild. It's wild that they've, they've taken the path they had the last couple of years, but it's made it very interesting from a, a content standpoint for me and for you and for everybody else. And while it's raised the heart rate of probably everybody in the greater Boston area, it's made for an interesting couple of playoffs. We'll see what happens now. Yeah, and that's why I thought Jalen's comments where he was getting after the crowd prior to game seven. I understand what he was doing, but it's like, you know, Jalen, if you guys played better at home, the crowd would probably be better because you get everybody anxious in the building every time you have these games where you just give them away, especially game one against Philadelphia was just inexcusable. All right. So before we get to the Celtics heat, back to game seven for a second. So Jason Tatum, he first puts on the show in game six in the fourth quarter after he had been so bad, and he was lucky that his teammates really carried him. I mean, not a lot of other superstars have that luxury to play so poorly for so long. Marcus Smart was outstanding in that game, and I thought Malcolm Brogdon was really good in that first half against Philly in Game 6. And then we saw the three over in Bede in Game 6, and I felt like that sort of got Tatum going. And then we saw them finally push that Embiid button where it's like, okay, we're going to start mismatch hunting, which is something the Celtics, I don't know if it's just not in their ethos, they don't do a ton of it, right? So then what we saw in that game seven is in the third quarter, four straight possessions, Tatum goes right at Embiid, where first he gets a layup, then he hits back-to-back threes, and then he gets to the free throw line. So in four possessions, Jason Tatum ends up with 10 points, and then the next two possessions, they get wide open threes for Jalen Brown because they blitz that, and Al Horford finds it open Jalen Brown. So it's all created by Jason Tatum. 
So I've said on multiple occasions, I thought the 46 he had against Milwaukee was the most important game of his career because you can't lose that without Chris Middleton. But I feel like that game seven, Tim, was the best game I've seen Jason Tatum play because of the fact that he destroyed their defense, right? Doc tried zone. Doc tried switching Embiid. Then they tried, at one point, they just dropped the coverage and he walked into an open three. So I felt like the game seven was sort of like the best game I've ever seen him play just because he changed everything the defense did, which... I don't remember a lot of cases where Tatum's completely changed the defense. Like the Milwaukee game six, that was just great shot making, I felt like. Yeah, I mean, I think this was sort of a combination of that too, right? Like he got really hot from three, started banging threes, and then Philly started just kind of mashing the controller, right? Just like trying to find something that worked, um, which I'm not trying to take away from Tatum's game. I thought he was fantastic in game seven and was great. I thought the more important thing was game six because we've seen... We've seen Jason Tatum and we've seen the Celtics be very up and down, right? We saw it last year at the end of the Golden State series. Like, they, he gets in ruts where he does not play well. And he, frankly, was not the best player on the Celtics, I think, by a pretty decent margin in this series. Like, Jalen Brown was consistently a better player. But yeah. at the end of that game six, Tatum missed, makes those four threes after being just absolutely horrendous the first 42 minutes. Like, you go back to halfway through game six, the Tatum commits that transition take foul after yet another poor play. Yep. Sixers go up by two. Crowd's going insane. And Bede misses a 12-footer that like rims out that he almost always makes. And Philly had a couple chances there to put themselves up four or six. They might have gone on to win. And what are we talking about from Friday on? Jason Tatum collapsed. This is an epic meltdown. Epic meltdown for the Celtics. How did they lose? They were all set up to win, right? He comes out, he hits those four threes, wins the game, gets him to a game seven, and then plays great in that game seven, right? It's a reminder that, and you're right, he was awesome in game seven. It's a reminder of how small these margins are at the end of the day. And the difference yeah. between being considered, you know, a championship level player and a guy that could be the best player on a championship winning Celtics team, which there's only a handful of those guys in the history of the sport. Um, or you're a guy that's looked at as a guy who failed in the playoffs and couldn't get it done when it mattered. Like it's four or five minutes of games. It's two, three shots here and there. And Tatum came through in a huge spot, gave the Celtics another opportunity. And now, like I said before, it's all sitting in front of them. Like in a month, the Celtics should be the NBA champions. They should win the next two series. It's just a matter of can Tatum consistently play well and can the Celtics consistently play well? If he does and they do, they should beat whoever's left and they should win the title. Well, he is humbly one of the best basketball players in the world. So he's got that. that going was, for him as well. My pal, my pal Cassidy with just an epic all time post game interview after game six. I mean, that that was a wild quote. But you know what? Again, to Tatum's credit, that was a pretty outlandish thing to say in that moment. <laughs> you know, I understood what his point was, but you were just terrible for basically the entire game. And it had been not as good as Jalen for basically the entire series. But you know what? He delivered in game seven. He backed it up. He was unbelievable in that game. Like you said, you know, whether whatever the reason, Philly was throwing everything at him and he was just banging shots, hitting sidestep threes, playing the way he's capable of when he's really in a groove and feeling good. And he took the Celtics apart or he took the Sixers apart, beat and beat, got the Celtics to the conference finals and got them one very big step closer to winning a title.
All right, so speaking of the up-and-down nature of the Celtics, you look at these last two games. They held Philly to 10 points in that third quarter, and the last two games, 89.6 defensive rating and 95.7 defensive rating. So at times, they've looked like the best defense in the NBA. At other times, they're posting defensive ratings north of 120. They're looking like the worst defensive team in the NBA. So the last two games in that Philly series, Robert Williams plays 58 minutes. The Celtics had an 85.2 defensive rating in those minutes, and traditionally, they he's a plus 37 in his 58 minutes. Him and Al together, 39 minutes, plus 28.2 net rating. And this is a formula, going back to last year, we know works. This was the best starting five in the NBA last season. And when Robert Williams came back from that injury, the second injury this year, they never put him back in the starting lineup. And in this series, Tim, against Philly, it felt like it was abundantly clear. Go to Robert Williams after game three, because really what we saw... Doc made a nice adjustment. He said, hey, when Rob's out there, I'm going to put Niang out there so Rob can't roam like he's doing off Tucker. So the way to handle that was start Rob so he'd have more minutes on Tucker, right? We saw Doc take McDaniels out of the rotation so there was less places for him to hide. So I'm just wondering, why do you think it took Missoula so long to make a change that it seemed like from the outside looking in, it looked so obvious to make that change. You think it's just because he leans offense more than defense and he sort of had to be nudged in that direction? Or do you think ultimately it was actually his decision? Because I'm in the camp that I think that he was pushed towards making that move. Oh, I mean, I, I would say, I would say in any kind of playoff situation like this, Brian, people, it's never like necessarily one person making a decision, right? You're having sure, meetings yeah. every day. Players are getting input, you know, front office is giving input. Coaching staff members are giving input, right? Like famously, the idea to start Andre Godala came from Nick Uren, who was like a video coordinator essentially with Golden State, right? There's ideas coming from all over the place and the coach is deciding what to do. I think ultimately, Joe Missoula is a guy who has leaned offense. And that has been, you know, it's been very interesting to watch this year, the dichotomy between Ime Odoka Celtics, where he always leaned for size and physicality and defense, playing Grant Williams, playing the, the two big lineup together, Playing bigger, more physical. Remember last year in the playoffs, there were a lot of times I was saying Derek White should maybe play more, but he didn't play more. And you're going, hey, you know, maybe Derek White would help. And he didn't play, right? This year, Malcolm Brogdon's playing. Derek White's playing. Robert Williams is playing less. Grant Williams is hardly playing at all at times because Joe Missoula has made it very clear. He believes in pace, space, shooting, three-point attempts. Those are the things he values. Not that he doesn't value defense, but that if you're choosing at the end of the day, Am I going to try to beat a team with offense or beat a team with defense? He's going to try to beat it with offense because of the, the roster they have and the versatility they have. I also think Missoula is a little bit of a prisoner of the fact that the Celtics have the deepest roster in the league and the fact that they can play in basically any style. It sort of sets you up in a perfect situation to be criticized almost no matter what you do, because if it works, well, great. And if it doesn't work, like Philly didn't really have yeah. a lot of options, right? Like, Say what you want about Doc Rivers. I thought he coached a pretty good series. It wasn't his fault. Harden and B combined to go eight for 29 and more turnovers and field goals in the competitive portion of game seven. But at the end of the day, they only had so many things they could really do, right? Whereas with Boston, like they have cards they're just not playing. Like Grant Williams just basically not playing. That's a whole thing they aren't doing. They have Robert Williams and Al Horford. I was with you. I wanted to see a lot of sooner. I would have put Robert Williams on PJ, let him roam around. I would have had Robert Williams out there at the end of game four and had Al Horford just on Joel Embiid instead of switching like they did and getting Tatum on Embiid in the first place, right? But yeah, Joel Missoula has stuck with what he's done. It's won him 57 games. They've had a great season. But 
at the end of the day, when the chips were down, they made that switch, turned their season around, and it got them to the conference finals. And like you look at the Warriors, they're a good example. The Warriors made that Andrew Bogut for Andre Goddard switch when it really mattered. Backs were against the walls. Like, all right, let's do this now, right? A lot of times, you know, coaches tend to be conservative and cautious with making moves like that. It tends to be they wait until they really have to dive in, especially if it goes against what they want to do. And then they do it when the chips are down and everything is on the line. And it's easy to say from afar, well, why didn't these guys do it sooner? But there's a lot of internal dynamics at play there that people on the outside looking in, whether it's me or you or fans or whoever, aren't really privy to, right? And so I think a lot of that plays into this. But at the end of the day, Missoula made the right call. They got the job done in their conference finals as a result. Yeah, and speaking of that, so now Missoula, 34-year-old head coach, and he goes up against Eric Spolstra, who is widely regarded right now as the best coach in the NBA. So I wonder, is there an argument to be made that it's better that Missoula went through sort of this adversity in the second round against Doc Rivers in Philadelphia, where he was late to make the move, rather than getting Eric Spolstra early in the postseason? Like, is it actually better that he's getting Spolstra in the Eastern Conference Finals after dealing with the issues that not only he, but the team as well dealt with in the second round. Like, could this be, could this help him more now that he's had a couple of calluses, if you will, because on paper, this looks like the biggest mismatch in terms of the coaching. Obviously the Celtics have the much deeper and much better roster, but from a coaching perspective, we've seen what Spolstra can do. I mean, this guy is busting out zones. He'll bust out everything. We saw it in the bubble against the Celtics where he out-coach Brad Stevens, who's a really good tactical coach. Yeah, I mean, Eric Spolster is the best coach in the league, right? And they've got Jimmy Butler, who, again, like I put Jimmy Butler on first team All-NBA and over Jason Tatum. And I think if you look at these playoffs, like, yes, Jason Tatum was incredible in game seven. Hard to argue that if you're picking a guy peak level right now, Jimmy Butler is a guy who gets to higher heights than Jason Tatum does. Like, mm-hmm. he's done some truly unbelievable things. And we saw last year. I mean, Jimmy Butler and Eric Spolstra was almost enough to beat the Celtics last year. Now, I don't think this series should be that competitive. I also didn't think last year's series should be that competitive, right? The Celtics let a few <laughs> get away that they shouldn't have let get away. And they should take care of business here. But again, can the Celtics play with the kind of focus and discipline necessary to consistently play well and win? If they can, then this could be a very short series, especially if Jimmy Butler's ankle is not right. But Eric Spolstra is going to game... Uh, you know, gamify things out. He's going to find advantages here and there. But I do think the Celtics, by going back to this lineup with Robert Williams healthy, I think it's just a very difficult matchup for Miami. Jimmy's ankle, he didn't really look right as that series went on against the Knicks. Obviously, he knew how to make the right plays at the end of game six to get them over the line, but he wasn't the same player who was doing superhuman things in games four and five against Milwaukee. And I think he's got to be superhuman to beat the Celtics, who have you know, Tatum, Brown, Derek White, Marcus Smart, they can all throw at him on defense. They've got Robert Williams and Al Horford that they can have at the rim to prevent Miami from getting to the basket. They can cover up the Heat's three-point shooters. That You know, if the Heat try to roll out there with Kevin Love and Bam Adebayo, the Celtics can destroy that, like, because they can take advantage of Love defensively. So I think it's going to be hard for Spo to come up with some wrinkles here. We both know that he will. And I'm sure the Heat will make it as hard as possible because they're always a very difficult team to play. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I don't really think it's about Joe Missoula here in that sense because, like, you're not going to take him over Eric Spolstra. But it's about, again, I keep repeating it, but it's really just the basic thing that only matters in this series. Will the Celtics 
not, as Doc Rivers tried to say, play with their food. If the Celtics don't play <laughs> with their food, they'll be in the NBA Finals. Like, they're just a significantly better team than the Heat. But we have to see them actually do it and, you know, get this series done. Like, Boston should get this series done in five games. They should win in five games. They should have a week plus to rest, get ready for the finals, wait to see what's going to happen in this, what could be a war in the other series with Denver and the Lakers, and just be able to take it easy and wait and see what happens and be rested and healthy and ready to go for the finals. If they want to win a title this year, come out. You got through Philly, which obviously was a huge challenge. Not take care of business against Miami and move forward. Well, and you've had the two best stats on the Celtics the past two seasons. And speaking of playing with your food, you look at the Celtics last year. You had the 16 or more turnover stats in the postseason last year. They were 1-8 and eight when they had more than 16, and three of them were against Miami, right? The three yep. losses. Six, 16 yep. or fewer turnovers, they were 13-2. and two. So the good news is Jason Tatum, despite the fact that he struggled shooting the ball at times, he's been much better with that. He's down from 4.2 turnovers per game to 2.3. So basically he's cut it in half. Jalen still has his issues, but Tatum's doing more of the ball handling, and they have more ball handlers now that Melvin yes. Brogdon's in the mix. So that shouldn't be as big of an issue as it was a year ago. Like, I don't expect Oladipo to start. Remember, Oladipo was coming in those games and, like, stripping Jason Tatum, right? And that was a whole different story. But now you look at the other stat you had this year, which is remarkable. So when the Celtics shoot north of 40% from three, they're 36-2 and two to update the last time you put this out there, and they're 29-28, and 28, basically a 500 team when they don't shoot 40%. The Heat during this playoff run, I was looking at this, they're giving up 12 corner three-point attempts per game the most in the postseason. Now, part of that may be the fact who they're playing, but then if you look at the regular season, they gave up 10.8, which was the most in the league as well. So if the Celtics can just not just settle for the threes, but do the drive and kick and get those open shots, they should be able to generate them no matter what the defense is that the Heat is playing. Because... I don't believe the Heat have enough good defenders to deal with the Celtics, right? And uh, you mentioned Jimmy Butler's ankle injury, but you're also asking a whole lot of Jimmy Butler if you're going to say, hey, you have the Jason Tatum matchup too, and then you got to do all this offensively on the other end of the court. And then it comes into, well, then who's covering Jalen Brown? And he should have, and Jalen sometimes struggles with his decision-making, but if it's Caleb Martin on him, what's he give it up almost 25 30 pounds, like the Celtics should be able to generate really good threes to the point of there should be a lot of games where they shoot north of 40%. It's almost, Brian, like they're playing an eight seed, right? <laughs> like, yeah, true. That's the thing. Like they lost to Atlanta. In, yeah, right. And was down to Chicago in the final playing game. Like th this is not a perfect team by any stretch. It's not the team that they faced last year. You know, Kyle Lowry has been fantastic in these playoffs, I think. His veteran experience, his three-point shooting has been a huge boost to them. They have different lineups they can run out there. But yeah, like, look, the Heat are in this position because Jimmy Butler has been incandescent and because they've hit a million threes when in the regular season, they were one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the league. So if Boston can get out to those shooters and not allow the Heat to get going from deep, and they, obviously, the 40% the, the stat is interesting on a few levels. On one hand, I think they've become too reliant on three-point shooting, a team with this talent. You know, people have talked about other things with Joe Missoula. My biggest issue with the Celtics this year is that they should not be a team that is this reliant on making threes. With the depth of talent they have and the versatility they have at both ends, they're not making shots. They should be winning more than half their games, in my opinion. But yep. that being said, if they can limit Miami's offense in this series, particularly from the three-point line, the NBA essentially is just a math problem, right? Like Joe talks all the time about three-point attempt rate. But really, if you think about it, 
both teams are probably going to get to, even in a bad game, it you know used to be like 50, 60 points. Now both teams are probably going to get to 80 points in a, even in a horrible game, right? Like Philly's offense was terrible in game seven. I think they scored, what, 88, right? Yep. Like you're probably, I think there was one or two games all season. The Celtics didn't score 80 points. So let's just assume you're going to get to 80, all right? To win this series, Miami's probably got to get to 120, realistically, on a few, a few different times. Well, how are they doing that? They're going to need, you know, Jimmy's going to have to play great, but Bam isn't a big scorer. They're going to need guys like Max Drews and Kyle and Duncan Robinson and Kevin Love to all hit a lot of threes because they just don't have natural scoring options, especially with Tyler Hero out. So I, I think the math problem really favors the Celtics, especially if their perimeter athleticism, like you said, which is a huge advantage in this series outside of Jimmy. I think if they can get out to those shooters and limit them, the Celtics should be able to smother that shooting for the heat. And like you said, Miami gives up corner threes because they have to give something up. And if the Celtics knock down three-pointers, they're not only going to beat the Heat, they're going to win the title. Because when they do knock down threes with the way they're built and the versatility they have, they're not just a really good team. They're the best team in the league by a significant amount. It's why they dominated over the first two months of the season. And they haven't played to quite that level since because their three-point shooting went from unbelievable to just pretty good to really good. And if they are hitting 40% of their shots, they just don't lose. Yeah, and I'm with you, too, on the three-point dependence. Like, that's why I thought Game 7 was so nice to see Tatum, especially early on in that game. In the first half, he's 6 of 9 on twos outside the restricted area. And he's somebody each and every year, he gets more and more analytical. And we've seen throughout the postseason at times, you need to hit those difficult twos. And he was 7 of 12, twos outside the restricted area in that game, which was massive for Tatum because that opened everything else up. So, hey, based on, you mentioned Kevin Love. I don't think he should be able to... Like, they're going to have to hide him if they're, if, are they going to be in a zone if they play him? Same thing with Duncan Robinson, two guys that are getting minutes. Like, I hope that the Celtics will mismatch hunt those guys more if they're on the court. But I got to ask you about love in general getting to Miami because this is something that really irritates the boss, Bill Simmons. How the hell did Cleveland just like let him go? Like, they couldn't get anything for Kevin Love. Was it just goodwill? They said, okay, you helped us get to a championship, so we're just going to let you go. And it does feel like the Cavs could have used them in the playoffs for like some additional shooting, but this guy just gets to go to Miami and we've seen it. Everybody that goes to Miami, they're all of a sudden good again. Well, I think, uh, first of all, the, the Cavs really messed up the Kevin Love situation, right? Obviously they could have used them in that first round series when they look like a team that had no playoff experience, really uh, playing in New York, getting absolutely obliterated in those games at the garden and just didn't look very good in those games. Kevin would have helped there. I mean, it's a long story as to why Kevin ended up leaving uh, Cleveland midseason. I think, you know, certainly he has played a couple of teams so far in Milwaukee and in New York that he could hang on the court against, right? They had options where he could guard somebody and they didn't really have the options to really take advantage of him. Um, you know, especially with Jalen, Jalen Brunson banged up with his ankle. As you saw that series go along, he was incredible in game six. And if he yeah. had been healthy the whole series, it might have been a little different. Going up against this Celtics team, I think it's a totally different story. You've got when they go small, especially, and they've got him trying, if they're going to have him trying to guard Tatum and Brown and Derek White and Malcolm Brogdon in space, it, it ain't going to go very well for Kevin Love in this series. So uh, he's obviously been a, a nice piece for the Heat. He hasn't been playing a ton of minutes, really. Spo has done a really good job of trying to finding opportunities to mix him in at the right spots during the game. Um, I think having him matched up against Horford is probably the best way 
for Miami to go um, because Al's really not going to put it on the floor and Kevin can kind of, you know, challenge right. his shots and not have to worry about Rob going over him athletically. Um, but yeah, I, I think that Kevin Love, you'll see, I think in this series, why a guy like him is going to be a struggle um, to stay on the court when you get to the conference finals and the finals, because the level of athleticism and speed on the perimeter is going to be too much for him to keep up with. All right. So you mentioned Butler, the ankle issue that he's been dealing with, and he had, he had that insane series against Milwaukee, a 56 point game, 42 point game. He also had 35 points. He had 30 points. Then you look at the Knicks series and I know he was banged up and I'll never doubt Jimmy Butler because I witnessed him almost beat the Celtics by himself almost last year in that series. But you look at it throughout the regular season. He was not a guy that took a lot of threes. And we saw that again happen in this series against the Knicks. So from the field, he was 38 of 88, 43.2%. He took just nine threes in the five games. He hit one of them after he actually was taken over three threes per game in that series in the first round. But the big thing is he lived at the line like he did throughout the regular season. And so I just look at it in terms of the impact that he can have. Like Milwaukee in that first round series, they wouldn't adjust at all, right? It was just like, hey, we have Drew Holiday. Let's go one-on-one. They wouldn't blitz him, do anything along those lines. Butler had his way. And then we saw the Knicks try some different things, and he was banged up in that series. But I look at the Celtics, and... Like I said, I'm never doubting Jimmy Butler after last year, but it feels like they have a bunch of different bodies they can throw at him, whether it be they can throw Tatum at him, they can throw Jalen at him, they can throw Marcus at him. I know Derek White would be giving up some size, but they could throw Derek White at him if they want. So who do you think gets that main matchup? And do you think that Butler is going to have some issue scoring in the series just because of the depth the Celtics have in terms of their whole game plan is going to be stopping Jimmy? I would imagine it's either Jalen or Marcus at first because they have the size and strength to handle Jimmy. Um, and look, there's two things in that New York series, right? One, Tibbs knows Jimmy better than anybody and was yeah, going to sell out point. to stop Jimmy, which is what he did, right? And the other thing is Jimmy sprained that ankle pretty badly in the first game and did not look to have the same burst after that. And that, I think, is the, the number one question in this series is – when we get to game one on Wednesday, what kind of physical shape it, it, from a from a burst and athletic standpoint is Jimmy Butler in? If he looks like the guy who was against Milwaukee, I don't think there's no way that Miami should win this series. But I think that Jimmy can make it competitive because of how good he is and how good he's been in these situations. But he's got to be that incandescent version of Jimmy from the first round. If he's just pretty good, this team does not have the horses to keep up with the Celtics and it should be very short. So very curious to see that first game, especially with this thing going every other day, you know, if Jimmy comes out in that first game and still looks like a guy that maybe is a week or two away from being fully right. Then the Celtics should pounce on these guys and it should be short. If he comes out and looks good, at least opens the door for Miami to make this a little interesting. All right. And the other guy is bam, because he had some really big regular season games against the Celtics this year. And if you go back to, he's the had bubble, six, I was going to, I was just going to yeah. say, going back to, I, would, I was in the bubble. Like he, he was dominant in that series was the difference in the series. Ultimately. Yeah. He, he was unbelievable in the closeout game. He averaged like 20, 10 and five or something like 25, 10 and five, whatever it was. And he had, had that great block, obviously. Yeah. The block on Tatum, which was just unbelievable. So And if you look at it, too, like the Celtics, they took Grant out of the rotation in this series in game six and seven. I would imagine that Grant gets some more playing time because I don't know how well Al really matches up with Bam because 
of the quickness, but he had a really weird series last year against the Celtics where there were games where he like barely shot the ball. I have to imagine that based on all the depth the Celtics have at the wing, that this is something that Spolster is going to have to dig into more. Like I would expect that Bam is going to be maybe more involved offensively in terms of his actual scoring than we've seen, not just throughout this postseason, but maybe really in his NBA career. Like I think they really need a massive series from Bam. And I do think He's the one real advantage they have in terms of, I don't really think the Celtics have a good answer for Bam. No, they never have, right? Like you said, going back to the bubble, it's always been, you know, the, the thing that is, has been the differentiator for Miami in these series. And Bam is sort of an enigmatic player, right? He'll have games where he looks incredible and then he'll have games where he kind of floats around. He's really the bellwether for um, this Miami team. Now, again, Jimmy's got to be incredible and Bam has to play like he did in the bubble, like he did at times last year. If he does that, those two guys together, they have enough to make this an interesting series. But again, that's where I think if you have the two bigs out there together, I think it makes life a lot more difficult for Bam. Um, I think it's a totally different look for the Celtics at that point. Because uh, remember, you go back to the bubble, they were also basically playing small then, right? They were playing with Gordon Hayward, Kemba, the two Jays, and then Horford a lot of the time. And it was just too, um, or no, no, it was Daniel Tice. It wasn't Horford at that point because that was that was yeah. before he came back. Um, but but they had Tice out there as you know, sort of a smaller, athletic big, and he was just getting steamrolled. Ultimately, yeah, right. They were they tried Grant Williams, they tried different stuff, but they weren't big enough ultimately to go against Bam. Without Horford and with Robert Williams, they should have enough size to at least neutralize him. And they just have to they just have to not get blown away by him inside, right? If he's a slight advantage and Jimmy's a slight advantage. Miami doesn't have enough. Those guys have to dominate in their matchups to give the Heat a chance, which is, again, why they're an eight seed and why the Celtics are heavily favored to make the finals and, frankly, should. Yeah, and the other component, too, is just the guards for the Celtics. One of the things that I feel really good about now is Smart looks like himself again. I felt like throughout the regular season, he was obviously dealing with an injury, and I know Derek White's minutes went down in game six and seven, but still for the series, he thought she shot 39% from three. And that was the concern last year, as at times he was just afraid to pull the trigger. That wasn't the case. And then the other element that they have that they didn't have last year is Malcolm Brogdon. And Brogdon has been at times really important to this team going back to that game six. And you look at some of the numbers like with him, he didn't show up in the impact metrics during the regular season. He certainly has now. And in transition, He's 21 of 37, 56.8%, 1.32 points per possession, which is in the 79th percentile. I thought like throughout the Philly series, he's the one guy that was constantly pushing the basketball. So this is, again, another advantage that the Celtics have over Miami that they didn't have last year, because we even saw this against Golden State when Brown and Tatum were struggling. They didn't have that third guy that could create his own shot. And that's no disrespect to White or Marcus Smart. But they're not exactly going to ISO you up. Now, Smart can do it a little bit like in the post, but they're not going to ISO you up and score. And I do feel like Brogdon brings a totally different wrinkle, especially when against Miami, he's going to be getting like the fourth best defender on the floor when he's playing with Tatum and Brown. Yeah, look, I mean, Malcolm Brogdon has been exactly what the Celtics traded for him to be in these playoffs, right? He was fantastic uh, in the Philly series. He's been great throughout. And it, it's for the exact reason you said. When they bogged down last year in the playoffs, and they sort of got out of sorts on offense and they, they got stuck in the mud. They didn't have anybody who could come in and just attack and make plays. Um, ultimately, that was the difference uh, in the series or in those series that they didn't have those guys to be able to make those downhill attacks and score. That's why I think when got Malcolm Brogdon, 
He's done every bit of that and then some and was huge, frankly, in game six. Like you go back, like, yes, Jay Statham hit those shots. Boston won that game because Marcus Smart, Derek White, and Malcolm Brogdon hit threes early in the game, right? Hit a bunch of threes. I think they were 11 for 19 for three in the game. They kept Boston in the game combined with Philly missing shots and gave Tatum a chance to win it at the end. Last year, they would have lost that game because they didn't have that extra bit of offense off the bench. Um, So ultimately, he's been great. They need him to continue to play with that kind of downhill force. Because again, I mean, it's, 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 I feel reductive saying it and I don't, I'm sorry to keep repeating it, but the Celtics are just way better than the Heat. They should win this series comfortably, right? Like this isn't even last year's series when the Celtics were, I think, pretty demonstrably better than the Heat last year. The Heat are worse. I think you can argue that the Celtics in some ways are better. Like they should win this series. They should win it in five. They should take care of business and they should go to the finals. Now, again, God, God bless anybody who knows for sure if they're going to be able to do that or not, because I certainly yeah. don't, but they should be way better. So we'll see if they yeah, are. I, I'm going to say the C's win this in six because they mess around and lose two games. They shouldn't. And I know game six would be in Miami, but we've seen the Celtics throughout this this two year run, if you will. They win big road games. They've done it time and time again. Yeah, they've been How way better you, road. They've been way better yeah. on the road than at home. Yeah. I'm going to say I'm going to say five just because uh, I'm going to be deluded into thinking they might actually take care of business this time. <laughs> I think you I think you probably have the right prediction. It's probably heat and six because Miami probably wins a couple of games, but it would be nice to see the Celtics lock in and do what they're supposed to do and just win a series convincingly and comfortably. Right. Yeah. If they do like, cause I think Denver's win in the West, that would be a pretty fascinating finals. Obviously the Lakers Celtics thing would be a circus if it gets to that, but oh, yeah. like, but Laker, but Boston Denver would be a fantastic series. Stylistic differences. You've got Jokic, um, you know, Denver's offense is great. They play, they, they, it'd be a really fun matchup, but you're, you get to the finals and you're playing Denver. You can't mess around like this team has so many times. They might end up losing like they did last year to golden state when that series is right there for them in the fourth quarter of game four, they didn't get it done. They end up losing the series. Right. So like, oh. let's see them come out in this conference finals against an eight seed. That's had an unbelievable run, but has their best player banged up. That doesn't have the depth. Let's see the Celtics come out, take care of business from the start of the series and get to the finals. I think if they do that, if they have that sort of statement of intent from the beginning, I think it bodes really well for them winning a championship this year. And even if they do get by Miami, but it goes six or seven games and they sort of, it's the sort of the same thing again, I'd have concerns going up against LeBron, going up against Denver in the finals, that it might just end up being the same situation again where this team gets really close, but doesn't actually take that final step for the same reasons we've been talking about for the last little bit here. Yeah, I still get scars from game four against Golden State because I really thought at that point the Celtics are going to win the championship. Hey, Tim, before I let you go, just one big picture thing. Do you think that Ime Adoka, of course, he took the job with Houston, but now you look at all these jobs that have opened up since he took that job. Milwaukee opened up with Giannis and the Phoenix Suns, of course, with Devin Booker and Kevin Durant opened up. Do you think, and look, if the ping pong balls go his way tomorrow night and he gets Victor Wembanyama, then he's not going to obviously regret this situation. But do you think it's just based on everything that he had sort of gone through that he felt like I have to lock this in? Because it does feel like, I mean, these are two really good jobs that maybe teams would have been interested in hiring him. And he took Houston, which has kind of been a dumpster fire of an organization. 
Well, I mean, look, they've got a bunch of young talent. They have 60 million in cap space to spend. They could end up with Victor or Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller, right? Like they could end up with another stud young player. And, you know, again, I think when you look at the, you know, the situation Mia Doka put himself in, I think, you know, going out and getting a, an NBA job, you know, one where a team clearly wanted him and was aggressive in pursuing him, I think it made sense for him to go get it. Now, obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty, and you could say, well, he should have sat around and tried to get one of these other jobs. But at the same time, Nick Nurse is unemployed. Mike Budenholz is unemployed. Bonnie Williams is unemployed. Like, there's really good coaches that are sitting out there uh, that teams could also just go hire instead, and maybe they all go get hired by teams, and then nobody hires them, right? So yeah. there's, only, there's only 30 jobs. Houston does have a lot of upside. It's a free agent destination. Uh, they have a ton of cap space. They have a ton of draft assets going forward. There are a lot of positives about that job, especially, as you said, if they end up with Victor, you get a generational player on your team, that's pretty good. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Maybe three years from now, the Rockets will have won a combined 70 games and he may will be out of a job and we'll look back on it and say, well, you know, would have been better off if he waited. But I think given the circumstances at the time, it would have been hard to guarantee that, you know, you certainly wouldn't have predicted Milwaukee was going to be open. And you certainly, you know, would have been easy to assume that Phoenix wasn't going to be open. So I think it's hard to look at it and say, oh, well, you know, he may really yeah. messed up taking a job. I He got a job with some real upside in a, in a good market. Um, and he had a team that wanted to hire him and did. So I, I think it made sense when he did it at the time. And I still think it makes sense now. Yeah, I was worried that he was going to try to pry Jalen Brown away after everything that happened with Jalen and prior to, of course, Jalen qualifying for the Supermax, because now I think it's an easy thing for the Celtics. Just put the Supermax in front of him. Nobody's ever passed up on it. And at this point, even if you don't think he's a Supermax player, based on trying to trade him a million times, you got to kind of give him the contract. So, yeah, I think I think the all NBA selection for Jalen Brown made the offseason a lot simpler for the Celtics all the way around. Yeah, no doubt about that. That is Tim Bontemps, of course, covers the NBA for ESPN. You hear him on the Hoop Collective, see him on This Just In with Max Kellerman as well. Bontemps, thanks so much for the time, man. Great stuff, and enjoy the Eastern Conference Finals. Appreciate you, Brian. Thanks for having me, man. Look forward to doing it again soon. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Tim Bontemps from ESPN. A lot of fun chatting with Tim, previewing the series. Cannot wait. I hope Tim's right. I hope it's a five-game series. I just said a six-game series because we've seen the Celtics team. They've had so many of these losses that are just completely inexplicable. I hope that the battle against the Sixers and putting themselves in a disadvantageous situation sort of gets them on the right path for this series and they just take care of Miami because they are the far superior team. All right, I did want to get to this because I found this interesting. Michael Pina had this great stat up about Jason Tatum on Monday that he has scored more points in the playoffs than any other player in the NBA since he entered the league, which is crazy to think about, right? Tatum's at 2,059 points since he entered the league in the playoffs. Curry's second on the list and Giannis is third. But think about that. That's insane. Tatum's still a relatively young player. And since he entered the league, he scored more points in the playoffs than anybody else. And in the past two seasons, he's beaten Durant, Kyrie, Giannis, Jimmy Butler, Embiid, and Harden. And you could say, okay, he had his issues in the Heat series at times, certainly. He had his issues against the Philadelphia 76ers. He didn't have any issues against Durant and Kyrie. But that's a pretty impressive list when you consider Tatum's age. And I know that he had a lot of stinkers in there, but he had a lot of big wins too, right? And he saved the season 46 against Milwaukee, the fourth quarter in game six against Philly, and of course the big game seven. And I've been tough on Tatum at times with certain things. And 
One of the things that I think I personally have missed out on, and maybe others too, because we just want to see another championship from the Celtics, is how remarkable a championship for Tatum would be this season. Even though Jalen at times, and we were talking to Bonteps about this, has looked like the best player for the Celtics throughout this playoff run. He has. I mean, at times, Jalen has been the superior player to Tatum, especially when Tatum was struggling so much, really, from game two until the fourth quarter of game six, right, against Philly. But if you look at Tatum's job, it's so much more difficult than Jalen's, right? Tatum in the postseason, 67 assists to 14 turnovers. Jalen's at 44 assists to 41 turnovers. Jalen basically for his career is a one-to-one assist-to-turnover ratio guy, which is obviously terrible. And Jalen could never do, and this is not meant to be an indictment on Jalen. This is more about Tatum. But Jalen could never be the facilitator that Jason Tatum is when he sort of leads the offense, right? He just doesn't have the ball handling ability. His handle is never going to be great. We've seen that throughout his career. And he really struggles at times making those reads, right? Like when the read's really obvious for Jalen, he can make the play, but he doesn't have that same playmaking ability that Tatum does. So Tatum, especially in game seven, what we saw Tatum do, that's not a game that Jalen could have because of all the playmaking Tatum did in addition to the scoring. So Tatum averaged 6.2 assists per game last year in the playoffs in his 23-year-old season. He's at 5.2 this year in his 24-year-old season. So just to put that sort of into context, because LeBron is a different type of player than Tatum, right? LeBron is Magic Johnson with scoring, right? That's sort of who he is. Jason Tatum is much more similar, and I've made the comparison before, to the path that Durant and Kawhi Leonard were on, right? So if you look at Durant, he's averaged north of six assists per game in the playoffs twice. Tatum did that last year in his 23-year-old season, and as we mentioned, he's at 5.2 this year. Durant's at 4.2 assists per game in the playoffs in his career. 4.2 assists per game in his playoff career. You know what Tatum's at? 4.5. Kawhi Leonard, first time averaging six assists per game in the playoffs, came this year. But it doesn't even count. It was two games. That's it. He only played two games for his career. Kawhi Leonard, assists per game in the playoffs, 2.9. You know where Jason Tatum's at? 4.5. So he's taking on more of the playmaking role, right? And he's a more advanced playmaker than those guys were at his age. Right now, Jason Tatum in his playoff career has actually been a better playmaker than Kawhi Leonard, right? And I'm not saying he's better than Kawhi Leonard. I'm just pointing out the facts here in terms of his playmaking ability. And Durant, he's never going to be Durant, and maybe he will eventually down the road, but Durant early on in his career was a much more efficient scorer than Jason Tatum was. But Durant did not take on the playmaking duties that we've seen from Jason Tatum. Secondly, in terms of now, that's just an impressive thing that in terms of the playmaking, he's ahead of where Durant is and where Kawhi Leonard's ever been in terms of his playoff resume. Okay, but just think about this. How rare is it a guy that in his 24 year old season, because Tatum is 25, but this is his 24 year old NBA season. How rare is it that a 24 year old is the best player on a championship team? Here is the list of the last couple NBA champions. Okay. With their best player, Steph Curry last year was 33. Giannis in 2021 was 26. LeBron in 2020 was 36, which is amazing in and of itself. Kawhi in 19 was 27. Durant, I'll give Durant the edge over Curry. It doesn't really matter if you want to argue Curry or Durant. They're basically around the same age. Durant 29 and 18. Durant 28 and 17. LeBron was 31 and 16. Curry in 15 was 26. I'll say 14 for the Spurs. I'll throw, I know that Kawhi was the finals MVP, wasn't the best player on the team. I'll say Tony Parker was that year over Duncan. Either way, Parker was younger than Duncan. So Parker in 14 was 31. LeBron in 13 was 28. 
LeBron in 2012 obviously was 27. Dirk in 2011 was 32. Kobe in 2010 was 31. Kobe in 2009 was 30. Kevin Garnett in 2008 was 31. In 07, Tim Duncan was 30. In 2006, Dwayne Wade was 24. That's the last time we've seen the best player on a championship team be in his 24-year-old NBA season. And Dwayne Wade played with this guy by the name of Shaquille O'Neal. Shaq, I don't know if any of you have heard of him before. So we're talking about a guy that had already been an MVP of the league in Shaq and a three-time NBA champion playing with Dwayne Wade. And you kind of had to account for the big guy down low as well. So just think about that. We're talking about 17 years since we've seen a guy Tatum's age win a championship as the best player. And Tatum doesn't have a former three-time NBA champion playing with them like Dwayne Wade did in Shaquille O'Neal, right? So look, we're going to be hard on Tatum at times because he's the best player on the team and because he's been an all-NBA first-team guy twice. But just remember this as he's sort of going through his battles here and he struggled against Philadelphia and he's had stinkers throughout his NBA career. This isn't ordinarily how it happens. Usually guys, as was illustrated there on this list, usually guys are around 27, 28 when they win their first championship. Tatum would be about three years ahead of schedule if he can finish this thing off this year. So it is remarkable just to put it into context. And look, Tatum has advantages that other guys have not, right? Like we see all these guys coming into the NBA, they go to bad lottery teams, right? Like speaking of Kevin Durant, he was going to a team in Seattle for a year and then they went off to Oklahoma City and they had to build up those lottery picks when it came to Westbrook and James Harden with the Celtics, they were like competing right away when Tatum walked into the league and Jalen Brown was already there and they had a bunch of guys that were veterans on this team. So he's in a much better organization than most of these other guys are, but it's pretty remarkable what he's been able to do in this short sort of time that he's had here with the Celtics. It seems like he's been around forever, but based on the landscape of how things work in the NBA, this isn't normal what Tatum's doing right now. And like I said, I acknowledge that he's in a better situation than most guys, but this would be very, very rare. All right, coming up next, I want to get to sort of reliving the nightmare that was the Heat Celtics series last year. We'll do that next. Welcome back into Off the Pike. All right, so that series last year against Miami was such a war, and I do feel confident, more confident this year in the Celtics than I did last year because just the fact that this team is... I know they've had bad losses, but I feel better. I think the Celtics are better than they were a year ago from a talent perspective, and the Heat are worse from where they were a season ago. But remember what the big thing was, and we referenced some of this with Bontemps. The turnovers were such an issue for the Celtics last year. So if you look at it, In the three losses, Tatum had seven turnovers, six turnovers, and seven turnovers. So in the three losses, Tatum had 20 turnovers. That's 6.7 per game. In the four wins, two, five, three, and three. So 13, 3.3 per game. And Jalen had a seven turnover game in that stretch as well. And think about this. Jason Tatum has cut his turnovers basically in half this postseason, as we referenced with Bontemps. So that's a big thing. The C's in the wins against Miami, 13 turnovers, 15 turnovers, 11 turnovers, 10 turnovers, 49, 12.3 per game. Two teams averaged less than 12.3 turnovers per game this season, the Raptors and the Mavericks. So basically, when they won against Miami, they didn't turn the ball over at all. In their losses, and as we mentioned with Tatum, it was 18, 24, and 16, so 58 turnovers. That's 19.3 per game. The Warriors averaged 16.3 turnovers per game this season, last in the NBA. The Celtics were up almost three more than that per game in their losses. The good news is Tatum's been much better, as we mentioned, but the Celtics this year in general 13.4 per uh, 13.4 per game. That was seventh. 
12.3 in terms of prior to the game seven in this postseason. So the Celtics are basically not turning the ball over much at all this postseason. They've had a couple of games where they've had their issues with it, but overall they've been much better when it comes to that. The Celtics, by the way, they had trouble in terms of the points off turnovers against Miami as well. I'm imagining that this is, and look, maybe I'm an idiot for thinking this, but this is one of the major issues they had against Miami this year. I don't think that's going to be the case in this series. I really don't. The Celtics, and especially Jason Tatum, has done a much better job protecting the basketball than he's done in previous years. Once in a while, you'll see Jalen dribble it off his foot. We've seen that. We've seen Marcus Smart try to make some crazy passes at times. But overall, I don't think we're going to see, like we did last year, where the Celtics have four games where they're over 16 turnovers. I just cannot envision, or I should say three games, 18, 24, and 16 last year. I can't envision that happening this year. All right, Jimmy Butler, and we got into some of this with the preview, but he's not taking threes this season or during the regular season, 1.6 per game, and he didn't take threes in that series against the Knicks. He did against Milwaukee. Now, the big thing is this year, in terms of Jimmy Butler, he got to the free throw line 8.7 times per game, which was seventh in the NBA. In the postseason, that number is up to 10.1. So this is one of the big things for the Celtics guarding Jimmy Butler. You have to keep him off the free throw line because as we mentioned entering last series, James Harden's going to try to get to the free throw line. Same thing with Jimmy Butler. He's one of the craftiest guys in the NBA, drawing fouls, getting to the free throw line. And the thing about Butler, he needs to get to the free throw line to be successful because What we saw against Milwaukee, the three-point shooting, that's not real. He's never been a great three-point shooter, and he didn't even want to take them against the Knicks, right? That's not sort of his game. Jimmy Butler last year had four games of 29 points or more against the Celtics. That included a 47-point game in Game 6 at the Garden. Remember that game, which, nightmare. 35 points in Game 7, where his shot was almost there to win it. And the Heat, by the way, in the games that he had, 29 points, they were 2-2. and He had three games where he had 13 points or less, including a six-point game and an eight-point game. The Heat were, of course, one and two in those games. And remember, one of those wins was a real stinker for Tatum. He had 10 points and six turnovers. He was three of 14 from the floor. Worth noting that no Rob in that game either, and that's obviously an issue. Okay, that was also a terrible Derek White game as well. He had zero points in that one, and... He played just one more minute than Peyton Pritchard in that game, and it should also be acknowledged that Daniel Tice started that game. But nonetheless, you give Jimmy Butler credit. So what is the common denominator when Butler had his big games last year? Well, it goes back to the free throws. In those games where Butler had big nights, the 29 points or more, 11 free throws, 11 free throws, 8 free throws, and 18 free throws, 18 free throw attempts he took. So 12 per game. Only one player was north of 12 free throws per game this season. It was Joel Embiid. So when Jimmy Butler... And the Heat were winning games last year. It's when he was living at the free throw line. In the games where he had 13 points or less, four free throws, zero free throws, and two free throws, so two per game. So Jimmy, and he was dealing with an injury, just like he's dealing with an ankle situation right now. But when Jimmy Butler cannot get to the free throw line, you have a really good chance of beating the Miami Heat. And the Celtics have enough smart, intelligent defenders, and we saw them play really good defense in games six and seven, where this should not be a problem, okay? But... You can't have these extreme games where Butler is just completely going off in terms of getting to the free throw line. And the other thing that it does is it slows the game down. It doesn't allow the Celtics to get in transition, which was a problem last year. Now, obviously, the Celtics half-court offense, they've had the best half-court offense in terms of via cleaning the glass by almost two points per 100 possessions throughout the postseason. Second-best offense in general. 
but they've had the number one half court offense, so they can score in the half court. But when they get out in transition, it makes them even more dangerous. And the Celtics do, again, have the athletic advantage in this series. All right. The other thing is Derek White. So remember, he missed game three last year in the series against Miami for the birth of his child. His best game came in the loss in game six, where I thought he was going to single-handedly win that game for the Celtics, but we mentioned Butler on the other side. He had 22 in that game. He had four of his seven threes, five assists, and that, of course, was unfortunately a loss at the Garden. But other than that, he was bad. Three points in 29 minutes, zero points in 14 minutes, 13 points in 41 minutes, 14 points in 29, and eight points in nine minutes. So 7.6 per game. And he had zero confidence with, with his three. So if you take out that game six where he played well, here were his numbers from three-point territory. 0 for 1, 0 for 0, 1 for 8, 0 for 2, and 2 for 3. So 3 for 14, other than game six, that's 21.4% from deep. And remember what was happening. He was either afraid to shoot, or in the case of game five, he was bricking everything. He was 1 of 8. And Miami was daring him to shoot because Milwaukee had just done the same thing in the previous series last year where he was 8 of 26, 30.8%. So because White lost his confidence, he was a non-factor in that series. And if you go back to this previous series against Philadelphia, yeah, he only played 19 and 16 minutes, but it wasn't like he lost confidence shooting the basketball, which is always when you worry about Derek White when he's afraid to shoot. Now, I would have liked to see him play better against Philly, but I'm not as worried as I would have been if he was just passing up shots. He was still shooting threes, and he still had a good number of his threes. He had 11 in that series, and as I mentioned earlier, he had 39%. So that's the big thing is the fact that I don't believe that Derek White's going to show up, that the guy that's just afraid to shoot. And even if that is the case, remember, Derek White this season on catch-and-shoot threes, 121 of 310, 39%. So if the Heat do leave him open, Derek White is more than capable, we've seen it throughout this postseason already, of knocking down those threes. And the other thing about Derek White is if he doesn't have it going, like what we saw in Game 7, you have Malcolm Brogdon, which is totally different from what this team had last year. So Derek White being a liability and the Celtics really not having a good guy to play after him because you really can't trust Peyton Pritchard on the other side of the court, that's no longer the case. So I think the Celtics are better in two different ways this year. Derek White is significantly better than he was last year, and you have Malcolm Brogdon, and if Derek White does completely lose it like we saw last year and lose all confidence, well, you still have Malcolm Brogdon, which is a big thing going forward. And then the BAM factor in this one, we mentioned this with Tim Bontemps. This guy does worry me. And one of the interesting things is in the bubble, we mentioned the great numbers he had. He had 32, 14, and 5 in the clincher, but he had such a weird series last year. So in the game six series ender, he had 25 points on 21 shots. He had 31, 10, and 6 in the game three win for Miami. So he had some big games where in that game, he was 15 of 22, 68.2% from the floor. 26 of Bam's 21 points in that game came in the paint. Now, worth mentioning, Rob did not play in that game, okay? So that's obviously a factor that Rob was not involved in terms of the help defense and all that different type of stuff. The 25-point game, Rob played only 15 minutes and he was hobbled. He did have 30-15 in a game back on 30 and 15, I should say, in a game on the 24th of January. Rob did play in that game. Rob in the series missed a game and he played south of 20 minutes twice. So he just wasn't himself in that series, which is obviously something to keep in mind against Bam. But one of the other things that jumped out to me about Bam in that series, he took six shots or fewer in four of the six games. We're talking about Bam out of bio. And from my perspective, if Bam is not active offensively, the Heat have no chance at winning the series whatsoever. And that's why this is my biggest concern. As great as Jimmy Butler is, and I kind of alluded to this with Bonteps, 
Bam is my fear because the Celtics do not have a good matchup for Bam Adebayo, but then you can look at the other side and say, okay, if Butler's going to cover Jason Tatum throughout this series, who's covering Jalen Brown? Who's covering Malcolm Brogdon? I just feel like the Celtics have so many advantages in this series against Miami that I feel really confident going into this series. And I know a couple of days from now, I may be watching game one and I'm watching the third quarter and the Celtics are doing all the stuff we don't want them to do. And it's just irritating to me, but I really feel like they have to have learned their lesson. And I know we've said that throughout their postseason runs over the past two years, but they had to have learned their lesson. All right. Cannot wait for this series. Just to update you on the schedule, we'll have a recap of game one. Of course, we'll have a pot up for you after game one, and then we'll have that on Wednesday night. Then we'll have a pod for you after game two on Friday. And then We'll be back to our regular schedule when they play Sunday and Tuesday and Thursday the next week. But this week, another pod Wednesday after game one, another pod Friday after game two. And also, thanks to our friends at FanDuel, I'll be giving you a same game parlay for game one on Wednesday. So make sure to look for that on social media on Wednesday. We'll give you our same game parlay for game one Celtics and Heat. Cannot wait. All right, as always, make sure if you want to react to the game. The game one on Wednesday, make sure to leave us a voicemail, 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Tim Bontemps for previewing the series with us. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys after game one.